Okay, welcome back everyone to another episode of Drinks with Matt and Chad. I'm your host, Matt, and today we have a very special episode with two very special guests. Today we're talking about housing, more specifically the housing market. Now it goes without saying that this is just an introduction, a first part to much to a much larger conversation. The purpose of which is to provide for you listeners with some answers to questions that currently occupy your mind, maybe provide some clarity. Moreover, consider this a regular stop to come and ask and to answer your questions that you may have to find some clarity and comfort in increasing uncertain environment. And housing certainly gives us some uncertainty. Treat this as an episode like we'll be talking about healthcare, education, and politics as well. Informational at the core. I cannot ask for two better people, friends, colleagues, and experts to help me walk through the nature of the housing market today, the volatility of the housing market, and what the hell it actually means. Uh, before I be- introduce our two guests, I want to thank Ringer. As I said before, record anywhere, anytime with anyone as if you're recording in the same room. I want to also thank Silverman Sound for the great music for our podcast. And thank you to the listeners for bearing with us for another episode. And I think these are going to be fantastic. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce to you Bob Ingram and David Hartigan. Welcome, gentlemen. Let's start off with a quick bio of you each, and then perhaps give me and our listeners a 30,000-foot view of the housing market itself. So either one, I don't care which one goes first. Uh, Let's start with with Bob. Oh, the pressure is on. Age before beauty. Well, you know, my my bio is ex- extensive because I'm a, a legend in my own mind. But currently I'm I'm the owner of uh, Encore Realty in Phoenix, Arizona. And before that or concurrently with that before the uh the last recession, I owned Encore Mortgage and I was the uh designated broker for that. So, you know, over the last 25 years, 26 years I've you know, kind of learned a bit about what's going on out in the market. David, how about you? Um, hi, Bob. Uh, David Hartigan, I am a mortgage loan officer for the one AZ credit union here in Arizona. Um, we are a statewide credit union. My team and I cover four branches for the credit union in the, uh, North Central and Northwest uh, Metropolitan Phoenix area. I have been a loan officer uh, for about seven years. I have been in real estate, forming a number of functions, um, one of which, uh, under which I, I had the pleasure to meet Bob Ingram. I was a title and escrow marketing rep. And uh, that friendship and my uh, experience in the real estate business goes back, oh, 17, 18 years or so. Um, I have been entitled in escrow. Um, I have uh, worked as a mortgage loan processor, as well as had my real estate license. Um, and again, uh, happily hung my license at uh, at Bob's brokerage. So we go back a long time and uh, hopefully we can share some knowledge uh, of our experience, not just in this area, but uh, our view from 30,000 feet of what's going on around the country. So I'm gonna- well, let me just let me let me just add one thing. I never really liked David. Uh, it was my mother that made me be friends with him. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't That's really like David thing. either. So I think we're in the same boat. So don't worry. Um, I, I will. I will put my expertise in housing as well. Uh, I once owned a home. 
<laughs> so that, that's it. That, that, that's, that's all I got on that did one. Did you lose it? <laughs> I actually, actually did. I actually did from the 08 crash. So um, that, that's a whole other story. So um, anyway, but um, I think our listeners will find out that I'm I'm just like everyone else. I may know a couple of things, but that makes me dangerous because I'm probably going to know them incorrectly with the wrong reference points and lens. And so I'm looking forward to our conversation because I do think the housing market is a is a kind of a culmination of complex processes and interactions among multiple actors. And you, I think you two are going to be very beneficial for our listeners to walk us through some of those interactions. So without further ado on that, what is the current state of the housing market in the COVID-19 world, right? And let's go, let's go the end of 2019 of what you saw in the housing market, the, the trend line, right? Of new starts, new builds, uh, maybe uh, home improvements, construction, things of that nature. And then where do you see it happening now? So let's just go with like, I don't, we don't need to go in that much detail right now, but just a 30,000 foot view on it. Uh, uh, well, 30,000 foot uh, is, is exactly what uh, our real estate market feels like because it's, uh, I feel like I'm in a free fall. Um, mm. And I'm, I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting to hit the ground somewhere. Maybe a bird will come along. And, so you, you and like to give our up. listeners a lot of confidence. Is what you, is <laughs> I, I feel like this is like a good fireside <laughs> chat, like an FDR kind of thing. Give mm. people some peace and confidence. <laughs> With, with the housing market, there's there are things going on that are kind of conflict with each other to decide whether or not we've got we're going to have a uh, uh, a good recovery after the COVID nineteen thing, or if uh, if we're not. <clears throat> Inventory over the last few years has been very tight. Um, our sales uh, our sales nat- nationally. Last year were probably three to four percent below where they should have been, only because of the tight inventory, and and builders are not uh, actively uh, putting out uh, inventory like they should. Uh, and I, I don't know what the exact numbers are as far as uh, the building goes on now, but we we essentially need to add about one point. Six million units a year, uh, just to keep up with population, and I think we're somewhere just over a million units now per year. So, you know, housing uh, housing units it's going to be tight. You know, that being said, you, you know you would expect uh, prices to rise and. And people to be battling to uh, to purchase something, but you know we throw COVID nineteen in there, which made everybody hold their breath as far as uh, buying, even selling. We've seen people uh, in large numbers pulling their their listings off the MLS, uh, mostly because I think they they're afraid that nobody wants to buy and. The inventory will get old, but also because people don't want strangers roaming through their house at this time. You know, potentially, you know, people that have have the virus. What what do you see with uh, mortgages, David? 
Um, well, to go back to Matt's 30,000 foot question, you know, the tail end of 2019, beginning of 2020 was very promising. Rates uh, really um, in the range of historic lows. Um, and uh, early on, uh, as this pandemic took over, rates um, pretty much fell through the floor. Um, it, that was about mid-February to mid-March. Um, you know, and it, it kind of followed a historical relationship between um, what was happening in the stock market and uh, then in the um, mortgage-backed securities and the 10-year Treasury note. That those are those are the um, assets that mortgage rates are really directly tied to. Um, so as the market fell, money typically goes to seek safety. And that safety isn't a 10-year treasury. Uh, it is in those mortgage-backed securities. And so what we saw was as the market started to react to what was coming on the horizon in the COVID-19 onset, um, rates really fell through the floor. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking sub 3% 30-year fixed mortgages, 15-year mortgages approaching 2%. Mm -hmm. But then... What ended up happening as we saw a horizon that many people uh, felt were going to be near depression level uh, economic impact was that flight to safety um, kind of reversed. And um, there were a number of factors, margin calls. Um, I, I have a feeling people were um, trying to hoard cash. Uh, and to keep their businesses open, keep their employees paid. So uh, it was kind of a 180 inverse relationship from that flight to safety where the market one day dropped 1300, 1400 points, but mortgage rates went up. It was, it was a relationship that I hadn't seen, um, in my seven years in the, in the industry. Um, now they've come back down. Um, but man, oh, oh man, is it volatile? Bob? Well there, there, I think uh, part of the reason we saw rates go up was because there were so many people rushing to uh, refinance uh, because of the low rates. And I think the lenders just wanted to slow that down at that moment. Right. I agree. But, but, I but agree. With, the, with the COVID-19, uh, surprisingly enough, we have seen or not surprisingly enough, but because of the, the COVID-19, We've actually seen loan applications uh, fall off quite a bit, right? Uh, home purchase, yeah. home purchases are down what thirty or forty percent uh, from last year at this time, and even yes. the refis, <clears throat> even the refis, I think, have fallen off about eighteen percent of what we were expecting. Yeah, um, purchase business, uh, you know, and it, any any good loan officer will tell you um, that's the backbone and should be the foundation of your business. Rates go up, rates go down. So that refinance business is volatile um, and dependent on those rates. Purchase business is what you've got to really bank on. Um, and I'm kind of concerned going forward, as Bob said, um, with the um number of applications for purchases and people actually wanting to have someone in their home looking at their home for uh, a showing um the, the purchase business is is going to is going to taper off quite a bit flatten 
Let me. The, Bob, yeah, yeah. Do you agree? Let me. Can I? Let me step in and ask you guys. A little, I want to unpack something because you guys are you guys are throwing out a lot of terms. David, you mentioned the ten-year Treasury note. Um, it would seem that the mortgage mm-hmm. rates follow the ten-year Treasury note. Do I have that correct? <laughs> historically, okay, sorry. Yeah. yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. Historically, but as yeah, Bob historically. said. Yeah, I, and so, but yeah. this is a little bit different. That is, there seems to be a concern with the COVID-19 that borrowers will not be able to repay their loan. So you have a maybe an increase in rates, maybe stricter guidelines, maybe an increase in down payment requirements. And so what does that do to the housing market itself? I'm just, this is go stick with this one question first, right? So I have a mortgage rate that follows a 10-year treasury note. And then it should go down. And I have a, I have a, like a whole hoard of cash, you know, that's parked in the bond market. Correct. Right. So that should drive down interest mm-hmm. rates, but it's maintained, or as you said, David, volatile. So could it be those two things, stricter guidelines, more down payments? There's a uncertainty of people are going to be able to maintain their job, employment and then pay off their loans. Would that be fair? Yes. 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 And when you mention tightening guidelines, absolutely, Matt. Um, I have, uh, seen, uh, just in my own experience at my own institution, some really unique programs that, um, as a, as a credit union, we offered that are now on suspension, mm-hmm. uh, lot mm-hmm. loans, construction to perm loans. Uh, the loan to value, the percentage that we are willing to extend you on things like home equity lines of credit. We, we shrunk that from 90%, um, combined loan to value. The, the value of your first mortgage plus your second mortgage, 90% of what your home is worth. That is now back down to 75%. Mm. So the riskier products out there. Um, are starting to disappear. Now, that is a portfolio program for us, meaning that's not something that we will have guaranteed by the uh, agencies like Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. That's something that we hold on our own portfolio. So we have control over it. We have control, more control over the rates. We have more control over what we lend in the guidelines. But we're looking at the long term here. If I, you know, if you look at it from a construction loan standpoint, mm-hmm. let's say, and I'm going to lend you $500,000 to build a home. We, we start it, we fund it. That builder starts taking draws on those funds to build that home with an anticipation in nine to 12 months, that home's going to be finished. Well, we don't know what the economy is going to be like in nine to 12 months. We don't know if that home's going to be worth $500,000. So there's our risk that we're trying to uh, stave off and eliminate on our books um, by pausing that program, at mm-hmm. least in the interim. So on, on that home construction, okay. so I think, Bob, you mentioned that we've seen a drop. I can't remember what you what percent you gave, but I think I read an article that we've seen the worst drop in March since 1984. I don't know if I have that correct. And if it's not absolute correct, we've seen a huge drop in March in new home construction. Would that be a fair assessment? Well, it's a good question. I I don't I don't know that we've seen a large drop in what we may have seen is a uh, a drop in new permits, mm-hmm. right? Uh, because 
the the products that are being the homes that are being built now, right, are the ones that were contracted prior to uh, COVID nineteen okay. becoming an issue. So I think what we'll we'll see is a lot of uh, a lot of builders since then have closed down their showrooms uh, and are are taking appointment only uh, showings uh, for their communities. So that's that's drastically impacted uh, that. But I don't think we'll see the we aren't going to see a real impact from that uh, for another 12 months. Uh, maybe, maybe eight months is when we'll really start to see because any home that was uh, sold in the last 90 days has not even broke ground yet. So, okay. Yeah. It, it makes make sense. There's a lead, there's a lead right, okay, time so the, there, but, but I, I don't want, I don't want to scare people thinking that there's really nothing going on in, in real estate in that, you know, the sky is falling. <clears throat> because that's that's not really what's happening. We have a a moment of hold your breath, right? We don't have the same issue uh, that we had back in 2008 and 2009, where there was no liquidity at all. There was no money to borrow out there, regardless of how much money you made, uh, what your credit was, what your equity was in in whatever you owned. Today, lenders are still out there looking to lend money, right? The market has not frozen up as far as lending money goes. Okay, so let me let me ask you this uh, then, a follow-up question on that. In the economic data that we're that we're starting to see and that we will be seeing in the in the coming weeks, does that include the housing market signs? Or do the, the does the housing market lag behind? Like, are they included yet? To your point, hmm. um, if you say we're if you say we're yeah, holding our okay, breath, so, right? Are we not seeing the true effects of the housing market in the economic numbers? We are. We are seeing. We are seeing that with resale okay. numbers, right? That's that's almost an immediate impact, right? We saw. In uh, March, we saw large numbers of cancellations of existing uh, escrows, um, and we saw very few uh, new escrows, mm-hmm. new, new sales. So, yeah, that that you feel immediate, immediately. Uh, construction, housing construction, you know, houses take 8, 10, 12 months to build. And once they're started, you can't just let abandon that and let it just sit there. So they're going to build those out regardless of, of that. So we don't see a big impact as far as construction goes. But, you know, going into the future, new home uh, builders will see less sales because people are not putting their homes on the market to sell. They're worried about that. Um, you know, it's it's a, uh, you know, it's it kind of flows, uh, trickles down from the resale market to the new home builders, right? You know, I'm I'm kind of torn between whether uh, whether we see a, a huge impact with rentals, 
um, you know, if, if people aren't working, uh, people aren't going to be able to pay their rent. So we should theoretically see uh, a drop in rental prices. And, and I'm sorry. That being said, that being said, if people if people can't buy homes, they need to rent, right? So that forces prices. Right. Up. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna let David jump in here. But one quick question on the rents. Then, if you look at metropolitan areas around the country, New York, Boston, even Phoenix, rents are dropping. So you you are correct on that one. But you're saying we could see it an uptick in rents if people can't afford their mortgages and they're forced to go rent. Is that what you're saying? Mm. Um, I, you know, I, more so than, than, uh, losing their homes, right? Because I think at this point, we're probably going to see lenders more willing to work with people to keep their homes than we did in the, in the last crisis. So I, I don't think we'll see people losing their homes in large numbers like we, we did before. But what we'll see is less people getting into the home buying market. Because, you know, it, let, let's say this is over in, in 60 days, right? 90 days. This is over. People are not going to be jumping to make big purchases. Mm -hmm. I don't see that, you know, new autos will be, they'll be hitting record numbers. I don't see housing hitting record numbers, right? That's all going to take time for it to come back and people feel comfortable to be able to spend money again. Right. So on, uh, I'm going to change gears a little bit. And David, maybe towards you a little bit here. Um, you mentioned stock, the stock market went mm -hmm. down 13, 1400 points a little while ago. If it feels that the stock market is a, is a sign of supply chain and inventory stock concerns, right? So if I see a decline in construction builders on the stock market, I'm really seeing a concern on supply chain as well as inventory would that would, would that be a fair assessment like i'm that's like a first sign of trouble ahead or am i reading that incorrectly well uh, you know matt i i follow the market because it's so tied to what i do every day and the rates and the directions um i i right now i i see the markets kind of mm. abandoning the fundamentals mm. and trading on emotion i mean when you see uh, a, a hopeful pandemic or a COVID drug mm -hmm. out there by Gilead, right? And all of a sudden there's a whisper that this thing might be something promising. It's just the hint of that that causes the stock market to go up. Um, when there's really underlying, um, you're, you're just, you were trading on emotion and it's really difficult because you, you know that there are industries out there travel, airlines, um, so many industries that are going to be impacted drastically. Of course, Netflix is up <laughs> because people have to hunker down at home. And some of the things that you can kind of predict are up. But as a whole, I, you know, I've seen some predictions that we could be back down in the high teens here in the next month or two. But to, to revisit something that you and Bob were discussing as far as um, people renting versus keeping their homes. Um, I know we have, and I know a lot of lenders have instituted, uh, payment deferrals 
Um, so if someone calls us and calls our, our, our member care center at credit union, it's members, not customers. We have a program where we will defer mortgage payments for them for four months. And yes, it's kind of a uh, quasi modification. At the end of those four months, they can make it whole. They can wrap, they can wrap it into a new refinance. Um, but if they need another three months behind that, um, that's available to them as well. Um, so I think from Bob's point, um, if this thing's done in 60, 90 days, this is a stopgap measure to keep people in their homes. And this is something that's come immediately. Um, unlike 07, 08, um, where these programs and these kind of things were, um, <laughs> difficult to get if you could even get someone on the phone at some of the big banks. But all of the lenders recognize the need. All of the lenders are trying to keep people in their homes and avoid that catastrophe of foreclosures and short sales that we saw back. So back it, it gives me it gives recession. me a little confidence then that maybe we did learn something from 08 and the economic downturn in the housing market. Yeah. Let hopefully. Well, yeah, you, they certainly came to the party with <laughs> yeah, $2 trillion right. Dollars right off the bat. But uh, again, as soon as they put that in place, they said it's not enough and we're working yeah, on I, and, and, and the and fourth I, package. Yeah, and, and, I, and I never thought so, $2 trillion we'll was, it was going to be enough. Um, I think we're going to be heading to some downturns here, but that, that's an all another discussion. I want to I change a little bit here and because, Bob, you mentioned something about you know selling homes. <laughs> And you mentioned something about no one wants to actually come visit a home and see if they want to buy it, right? So those those days are done, at least for right now, in the immediate future because of COVID-19. How well do you think the market is adapting to virtual tours? That is, like, I know people want to be in the house, but there's some limitations to using cameras and movies and, and, and motion picture to, to kind of get the 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 spirit or the the nature of the home lighting could be off. You can't really get the room dynamics. You can't get the feel for the home. How much is that going to stay around after COVID-19, right? Are we going to see a transformation in the market using virtual tours more so than walking clients through homes? Um, You know, I I think we will see a lot more of that uh, going on. Uh, Maybe not to make your final decisions, Mm -hmm regarding properties. But um, I, I actually sold two homes in the last, I don't know, six weeks uh, using FaceTime. So I, I walked through the property. They were able to see what I was seeing. We were able to talk about it. I could zoom in on something for the client. Uh, they really liked that, right? Actually, uh, you know, one became a contract without the buyer uh, seeing the home mm-hmm. prior to a contract. So I, I think we'll, there is a place for that, right? And I would not be surprised that if going into the future, agents did a lot more of that for tours, right? Take people around, maybe go see three or four homes that day. Uh, using your FaceTime or some type of virtual uh, tour and and then maybe getting down to one that they really like and going in to see just that right. one property. Well, there's, there's, a, there's definitely a place for that. Uh, and it's not that there, people aren't out looking at all. We are still seeing 
some showings, but 90% of all those showings are happening with vacant homes, not okay. occupied homes. Okay. Now I want to, I want to go to before I, I I'm going to change gears a lot on you two. It's probably a little unfair, but I'm going to, I'm going to go to an article I read in Politico by the federal housing finance agency director. Uh, I'm going to butcher his last name, Mark Calabria. I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. I could, I could not be who's, who is, I think he's more of a libertarian. Um, and he refuses to use Freddie and Fannie to bail out. Now, outside of what that means on the, on the ground, is that a good thing, right? Or maybe it's a concerning thing for a director to say that now, right? Does that send some shockwaves to your point, David, on trading on emotion? Does that send shockwaves through the market when the agency director says, no, we're not going to use Fannie and Freddie? Uh, I'm not sure exactly what you mean by they're not going to use Fannie and Freddie. Fannie yeah. and Freddie, they're <laughs> yeah. the they're the two largest secondary. Right. Well, market, they they, they, uh, they cover they cover half of the eleven trillion dollar mortgage market. But in the article, it yeah. says that he's not going to use Freddie and Fannie. It's not Freddie and Fannie's job to bail out companies, right? So he's not going to use their resources if some companies are going to go under. Some companies are going to go under in the housing market. Oh, well, and then I'm assuming what he's talking about there is is buying um, the mortgages sure. from some other sure. secondary market holder. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And but, I, but I my, my, my larger point is, and, is, uh, that, is that advisable for a director to come out and say that at this point? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> oh, with a market that's already injected with fear. Why, you know, why would you share those generally if that's your emotion? Um, but, but Bob's right. I mean, the reality is that that Fannie and Freddie, um, there's no way to unpin them Correct. from from the housing market right now. So, OK, just, so just the- yeah, and I'm, I'm not I'm not sure that uh, I'm not sure that Fannie and Freddie should bail out um, other companies, right, that are. Uh, that trade in, in mortgages, right? Uh, because the, the reality of it, of it is, is if those companies go under, they may have to discount uh, those mm-hmm. mortgages to sell them off. But, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean it has to impact the mortgager, right? You know, the, the actual borrower, right? Whether whether their mortgage has been sold off to uh, to another holder at 70 cents on the dollar, right? Uh, just because that uh, that company, you know, what got into financial trouble there. If the borrower is still, you know, if they are still making their mortgage payments, they're not in default in any way. Uh, there's not a lot they can do to to force the borrower to cash that in and somebody out there will buy it. Right. I mean, we're, we're talking about, you know, the free market here, you know, Fannie and Freddie. And we're also talking about tranches of mortgages that are in much better shape than the tranches that were being collected back before the great recession, where 
the no income, no asset loans had about a third of those mortgage tranches, those investment securities that were stuffed full of just garbage, junk, junk loans. So the, the, the investments that are out there, whether a company has managed their finances and, and their capital properly, Bob's right. It is 70, 70 cents on the dollar discount. Somebody's going to pick it up, but it's not like, um, you know, the big short days where, you know, triple a rated tranches of mortgages were hiding a whole lot of problems. So I, I agree. Just, I agree with that. that assessment, David. Let me, let me press both of you on this then. Unlike 08, where the Great Recession, the chief cause was the housing market. And as you mentioned, the tranches and the crap, you know, loans underneath in those tranches, right? That were inappropriately labeled AAA, whatever the case. We can go into that on a different episode. But I suppose if this one's not caused by the housing market, then let's say it's caused by unemployment or underemployment, then then people are going to be more in debt. That is, there's not going to be as much disposable income at the recovery of this. And therefore, even though housing is not the chief cause, it certainly will be affected in great, in great amount. And then you have on two fronts, one, a slow and arduous recovery. And then two, you have people not going into their next home. It used to be you buy your starter home, then you go to a larger home and you move up the lines. And so millennials, for example, may not be able to find that supply of home any longer to, to go into the housing market. So we may see maybe a generation of renters. I'm just, I'm making something up here. I'm just throwing it out there as, as an argument. And so my question then becomes, is it going to be a long, arduous recovery from what you see in the housing market? And then two, are we going to see a generation that's going to find it increasingly more difficult to get into the housing market as as buyers? Well, I guess the real question is, is are we going to run into multiple generations that do that? Millennials um, as a group uh, purchase are purchasing homes uh, at a lower rate than uh, any of their previous, you know, groups, uh, age groups. Um, and the, uh, the group, the, um, uh, group just after millennials are actually purchasing homes at the same rate or even a little bit higher rate than millennials are. So, you know, question is, 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 is that mentality going to, you know, kind of spill over onto the next generation? And we end up with two generations of, of renters. We, we've already seen we've well, already I, seen home ownership drop to the lowest rate since they've kept records, right? I mean, we're at about sixty percent, whereas we were uh, be prior to um, you know the the crash, uh, we were at what sixty seven percent, just sixty seven and a half. That's a big di- discount uh, decline in ten years. And I think some of it, Bob, as you mentioned, the generational uh, issues, um, a lot of the home buyers who typically um, would have been out, they've got their first job, they're starting a family, they're going to want to have that American dream, a, a home of their own, saw what their parents went through back in the Great Recession. And it, I think it kind of scared them and they didn't want to commit to something like that. Um, and here we are with another wave of potential 
housing pain that just as these people may have been going, yeah, you know what? Rents are increasing. You know, it looks like I can buy something and it's not going to be, if it's a stretch at all over what they're paying in monthly rent payments, um, it's a slight one. Uh, yeah, I really should invest in real estate, which I still believe is the best investment you can make as a nest egg. Um, but that generation may view it totally differently because now here we've got a, a second uh, wave of economic pain on a, on a national and kind of, kind of catastrophic scale. But I, I have a feeling that rents are going to continue to go up and that the housing market is still going to be vibrant once we get on the other side of this. Um, you know, the pain from 07, 08 was long term. I think there's still going to be pent up demand at the other side of this. Um, yes, Matt, as you said, unemployment, underemployment, those things might continue past when we actually open up the economy and open up businesses. But I, I think we'll recover um, fairly quickly as long as the people <laughs> up at top make the right decisions and, and we have the proper testing. And it's well, you know, I, All right. that's, that's for another podcast. Yeah, right. I, I, you know let's, I'm going to edit that have, last comment out. Like, people at the top that. make the right decisions. I'll edit that one out so you won't be on the right. <laughs> well, okay. But but I, I think I think maybe we do need to talk about uh, the people at the top and, and the government's involvement. You know, we, for the first time in my lifetime, we have an administration that is not promoting home ownership, right? Um, they've actually done what they can to undermine that, right? The, uh, the, tax, the tax changes that they, they made a couple of years ago uh, made it less attractive to be homeowners, right? They've, they put limited limits on what you can write off as far as your salt taxes, your state, uh, state local taxes, right? They have, uh, put larger limits on the amount of interest that you can write off because of home ownership. And at the same time, they've made it a lot more attractive for investors to own property and rent those out, right? There are more deductions now for, uh, for people investing in real estate. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing as far as investors go, but everything, when you start to add it all up together, you know, really does undermine the American dream. And, and maybe the American dream is changing. I don't know. You know, people are more, the younger people are more about lifestyle than possessions, right? So, you know, this may be the new norm going forward. But I, I could, I could see uh, in the next decade, if things continue the way we are, um, that we end up at 55% ownership. So let me, let, okay, let me, let me ask you this then, Bob and David. On, on that point. And let me see if I can, I hope I can construct the question properly here. It would seem to me that the two positive, uh, positives of home ownership rests on two distinct ideas. One is home ownership is a form of identity and attachment to place, uh, and community. That's, that's one. 
right? So I'm a homeowner in Phoenix, which would be a different identity than I'm a homeowner in Boston. Okay. But also homes also carry this other distinction, which is an investment good, which you brought up, David, on property, right? So now I have home ownership as a form of identity and attachment to place, but also an investment or, or consumption good in itself. And those, those two are not necessarily like they don't work in tandem that can often compete with one another in, in catastrophic ways and sometimes. And now what I'm hearing from Bob, unless I'm misunderstanding this, is that there's a negative connotation. I would, I'll say those two things are positive for argument's sake. The negative would be now it's, it's an anchor that younger generations don't want. That is in a more complex economy that requires mobility and freedom to move in and out. And maybe you're right, David, that people are staying home or not buying homes rather because of the 08, they saw their parents do it and they want that freedom to be mobile. So home ownership is now seemed not as a positive where it used to be in American history, but now as perhaps a detriment. Do I have that correct so far? That's an unfortunate sentiment if that's what's going on. I think there's a number of factors contributing to that, Matt. As Bob said, maybe the American dream has changed and you've got a generation that has grown up um, basically with virtual reality and virtual spaces to interact in the palm of their hand and on a tablet. So maybe their vision of where they need to be and where they can be um, isn't necessarily anchored in a physical place like a home. I would argue on the counterpoint to that, that uh, as far as a home being an anchor, um, I, I think that anchor is um, is necessary, especially when somebody starts building a family. I mean, it's hard to be a nomad um, in the economy. Um, and if you can anchor someplace and work from uh, virtually, that is your anchor. You could work for for a company in Boston and live in Phoenix. So some of those things will contribute to people wanting to do that, too. I, I, I Maybe I'm just an optimist, and maybe uh, Bob's in my generation. We were taught that that home is your nest egg. That is the, um, the root of your family, and maybe that has changed. But maybe we're just not doing a great enough job to teach the next generation how great an investment that is, how, how important it is, to be paying into the equity in your home um, rather than paying the equity uh, into your landlord's loan in your landlord's home. So um, I, I still have hope. Uh, the other factors, you know, a lot of the new generation is coming into uh, a home ownership situation and trying to qualify with just massive mm -hmm. amounts of student debt. I think that's something that's going to continue in the future unless there's some type of relief. Because that's, you know, those, those student loan debts, um, have been hampering, I think, some of that percentage that Bob talked about for eight, 10 years. So, so then what I'm um, hearing some of those changes have to happen is here. the changing of the economy that is the nature of work, right? I'm, I'm, it's more virtual than it is. I, I don't have to be in, in Boston, like you mentioned, I can be in Phoenix. So my work now is more virtual. I can be more mobile in that. On top of that, you have to consider the fact that it gone are the days for the most part where I can start in a business sweeping floors and move my way up in 30 years and maybe become CEO of a company. 
I think the average time someone spends in a job now is roughly between five to seven years, which means they're changing jobs quite a bit in their working years, which means buying that anchor, that home on one hand is fantastic. Like you mentioned, building equity in investment, right? You have your, your retirement egg, for example. But on the other hand, it could be a huge detriment in a more complex economy that requires you to change. So even though I could be virtual from Phoenix to Boston, I may still have to move if I lose that job. That job may not be around in seven years, if I'm making sense. Yeah. Uh, you are. And, and go ahead. You know, it, it's, uh, it's funny. I, I think, uh, I think the thinking of uh, how people think about their homes now as compared to 30 years ago, you know, you, you bought a home, you worked at paying it off. You never once thought about refinancing yeah, right, to pull yeah. money out of your home, right? Yeah. Now, nowadays, uh, people are refinancing every, you know, three to five years, you know, supposedly to get a better interest rate, but at the same time, they're pulling money out. Nobody is, you know, the vast majority of people are no longer uh, using their homes to build wealth and equity going into the future for the retirements or long term. Um, you know, it's it's a piggy bank that you crack open and use whatever's in there at that moment. Maybe five years from now, you'll have more of that money that you can pull out. When you treat a when you treat a home like that, you there's no way that you become mm -hmm. vested in that home, right? Want it, want it there long term. It doesn't make any sense when but don't, you know, but don't, when you have too much. I'm going to add to David's point that he mentioned it. earlier. It's it's almost as if the home as an investment good, you know, one of those two chief identif identifications of a home is a rent that I pay myself. And I don't mind paying that rent to myself because there's an expectation that the home will appreciate right down the line. So I don't mind paying that. So if I have to refinance, my rent may go up, but I'm still paying myself because there's an expectation it'll appreciate in the future. So on one hand, I can say your point. I can see your point and say, they're not really truly invested and in, in sticking with it. And they're just pulling money out, you know, cracking open the piggy bank, as you may, as you referenced. But at the same time, it does make sense. And I'm going to add the point that David mentioned. Could it be then that the home is the, the last avenue? I suppose I don't want to say last, but maybe one of the last avenues where I come into the, the marketplace in debt, student loan debt, heavily in debt. And therefore the only thing I have that I can actually borrow against is not my skills because most people come out at a college underemployed, but now the only thing I can crack open and get some money is my home. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to max out my credit cards, right? So I can't borrow on that, but why not just refinance my home and I get some cash and I can pay down some bills. I can, I can do something to the home. I can, I can do whatever I want, but you see my point. So I, I think it's the home, and this is why I, I want you two on here and do this on a regular basis. The home is such a unique function, it has a, a unique function in our economy. On one hand, it represents the highest consumption goods expenditures in the country. If I buy a home, I know that I'm going to buy goods for the home. 
correct? You know, appliances. I'm gonna re. On a, I'm gonna build. I'm gonna add things to it, and that spurs the economy. That's sure. good. On the other hand, though, that's actually bad because then I'm gonna break open that piggy bank and borrow against myself. So it's it's a unique time. The National Association of Realtors does a survey uh, of home buyers and sellers every year, and and I don't have the survey in front of me, so I don't know the exact number, uh, but. Uh, people that refinance their homes are more likely to sell their home in two to three years than anybody, than a person that does not finance their homes. Um, and, and I suspect the reason is, is because, um, when they look at their home, right, and they see that equity that's building, whether it be through appreciation or paying down your mortgage, right? When, when you get to a certain point, you look at that and it's significant. You, you have a certain feeling of security going into your latter years. If you've refinanced and you pull the money out of it, at that point, it's just an asset. There's nothing, there's nothing there to hang on to. I'll look that number up and let you know what it is at, at some point in the future, but, um, it, it was significant. I think uh, people who refinance their homes were more likely to to sell in in two to three years. It, it was like thirty percent more. Well, it kind of makes sense uh, because one of the reasons people do refinance is so they can improve the home for resell, right? I mean, there's a lot of that going on in those numbers, right? Yeah, or they're paying off credit cards. They're you know, they're, they're paying off their, the one thing they don't pay off when they refinance a home is their student loans, right? That's the one debt people seem okay with keeping forever. Uh, I don't, I don't know why, but. Well, I, yeah, I would agree with Bob. Um, and just, um, in the last wave of refinances that I've seen in my position, um, I would say, Probably 60% uh, of the refinances that I'm doing, uh, I, when the rates fell through the floor, um, were cash out refinances. Um, but uh, Bob's right. What people are doing is I don't see a whole lot of, Hey, I'm taking 20,000, 30,000, $50,000 out because I want to go buy a trailer full of quads or there's some frivolous thing that they want to do. A lot of the cash out refinances I'm seeing are consolidating debt. They're paying off a HELOC that they happen to take. And that goes back to Bob's point of people tapping into the equity in their home um, for this purpose, that purpose. So they're they're paying their, their HELOCs off. They're consolidating their debt and paying off 22 to 18, 20, 22 percent credit cards off and really improving their household cash flow using the equity in their home to do it. I happen to think that's a great strategy, especially in a low rate environment where you may not see any additional out of pocket on your monthly housing expense um, because rates so low, you might be in a four and a half, 4.75 rate. You're able to get into a three and a quarter, 30 year fix and eliminate a lot of that 20, 22% credit card debt. That's a smart move. That 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 is a strategy 
I would recommend. But as Bob said, viewing your home as a piggy bank is not a great strategy. You really have to be strategic about how you approach, how you utilize whatever equity you've built up in that home, either through your your constant mortgage payments towards principal or an appreciation in the value. Uh, and we've been lucky in the Phoenix market to see a pretty healthy. Um, no, I, I I can't uh, agree with you more, David. Increasing on, after on, the last and, crisis, on using it as a strategy to pay down debt. Um, I know people have done that themselves, and and when money is cheap, when you know, I think people people get confused with the finance market. Interest rates essentially is the cost of money. That's or, or the price of money. Either way you want to look at it. And so when the price of money is low, it's okay to borrow to pay down higher price money, like if 22% credit card. So it makes perfect sense on that with the knowledge or with the understanding or with the hope that your home will still appreciate in the future. And so, and I think we've only seen one time where that hasn't happened and we, you know, 08, the, the great recession. So I agree with you. That's a, that's a great strategy. My fear, I guess, would, would go on. Then you're still not paying down the home. That is what happens when the appreciation slows or if we hit another crisis as we, as we did in 08, then we're going to see you're still in debt, even though the cost of money is lower and you're saving money and improving your cash flow on a monthly basis, you're still going to be long-term in debt. That makes sense. Well, you're, you're, you're probably it's going a- to be in, in more debt, right? Because right, just because right, right. you paid off your, um, your car, your credit Correct. cards, doesn't mean you're not going to go out and run those up again, right? And and that's the problem. If it's if it's an extraordinary event and you go, look, I gotta I gotta get out of this high, you know, uh, interest credit card so that I can get my head above water, great. But you know, uh, people are using it, using the equity in their home. Solely mm-hmm. for the purpose of uh, subsidizing their lifestyle, I run I run my credit cards up for the next two or three years. I'll refinance my home, pay them off. You know, two three years down the line, I do the same thing, mm-hmm. and you end up with absolutely no equity in anything after twenty. It's years. almost it's it's almost as if that we have this weird perception of debt. Agreed. Now that we didn't have before, I think Bob, you mentioned um, earlier on previous generations and this idea of debt. Where my parents and your parents, they went without, right? So they couldn't afford it if they didn't have money, enough money in their in their checking account. Now, granted, they didn't have credit cards as available as we do today. But that being said, it seems to be you just went without and. In, in our economy today, we can maybe save this for a different podcast, but it would seem that I need that instant gratification. I have to have this now, maybe keeping up with the Joneses. And here's an interesting thing maybe we can talk about. Keeping up with the Joneses has even changed. I'm no longer looking across my yard and keeping up with my neighbor. No, no, no. Now, because I have this, this thing called the television and the computer in my home, I see my neighbor as someone in Seattle, someone in New York, and I see them with a lot of things. And they become my virtual neighbors that I have to keep up with, even though my other neighbor that's physically next to me is in the same boat as I am. I don't consider them 
my neighbor anymore. It's almost like this flattening out idea of keeping up with the Joneses. And it's like an arms race now where I have to keep buying these things because I'm one, I'm being told, two, I'm comparing myself with others. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that phenomenon. Well, no, Bob, go ahead. you want to go? Um, Matt, that's just, <laughs> that's a generational thing, I think. And, and you're right to touch on it. Um, we are bombarded with um, the need to keep up, the need for the newest phone in your hands, the, the latest, the greatest, the, 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 the uh, AirPods versus your wire. You know, it's, it, it's a game. It's consumerism. It's really what, um, where our economy is, is that I have to have the next one. I have to have the latest and the greatest. I will be honest with you. And my iPhone that we're having this podcast call on is about four generations old, but I'm of a different generation. The younger bankers that I work with laugh at me. And I'm like, wait a minute. Why, why would I go out and get a new phone? This one works perfect for me because their view is that if you don't have the latest and the greatest, you're just not keeping up. And maybe that is a generational thing. Um, I, I, hey, if any bright lessons come out of the pandemic and where we're at right now, I hope some of that is pulled back quite a bit because there's something to be said about valuing what you already have and not having to spend money and mortgage your future and dip into your credit cards that have to be refinanced uh, later on down the line because they're at 22%. Right back to Bob's point, um, you know, there's got to be some discipline. There's got to be some frugality in the future, and hopefully we find it um, in however long this pandemic takes us. <laughs> Bob? I, I'm, I don't know if we just bored Bob or he's drank too much. <laughs> you know, uh, all right, all right. All right. Uh, he's, he's, yeah, I think he's just oh, cracking open that next bottle of single malt, but, um, you know. <laughs> I, I, I don't know, Matt, you're, Matt I, mm -hmm. Bob and I come from a generation where we were educated by people mm -hmm. who um, learned the Great Depression um, that you, 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 you go without. You're right. If you don't have the money and borrowing to get it is not really a path, um, that was the generation my parents were. And of course, I grew up in a generation of, hey, there's a credit card. Now, the Internet wasn't there. And that's something my kids are learning, right? It's all thrown at you yeah. every second that you have a phone in your hand. It, this well, is think, this is the newest. This is the latest. This is the greatest. Yeah, and, and I think um, to add to that, I David, think there has to be very well spoken. To add to that, um, which is your money with a credit card is cheap. That is, if I go without, there's a cost to it, right? There's an external cost where I have to put off some gratification for X amount of time, where a credit card is cheap. That is, I buy it now and therefore I get that gratification now. So it becomes, it's almost cheapens consumerism a little bit where I get that instant gratification. Whereas before, you know, your parents, yourselves, my parents, we were taught that certainly in my household. Um, and so that does play into the fact where next generations may not have those same lessons because after each generation, those lessons become a little softer. Um, they become a little bit more abstract. They become a little more historical, which means it's, it's not proximal or immediate to them anymore. So I think we're, we may be losing something there. Yeah. 
Uh, you know, over the last 50 years, sadly, I'm old enough to remember this, uh, but but over the last 50 years, my parents owned six six homes, and they never refinanced and pulled cash out. Never. That's not to say that they, they right. didn't refinance at times to get a better interest rate, uh, but they never pulled money out of their home because their home... The equity within mm -hmm. their home was considered sacred and for something later on. It was passive. You, you know, you could pay rent, you could pay mortgage, but, you know, as long as you're paying it and you're not treating it as if it's just a savings account for you to pull out whenever you need, you're going to end up in pretty good shape at the end, right? Or when you really need it. So, Bob, that goes back to, um, I think it's a sales job, right? And the financial markets have pushed that equity as a resource. And it's, uh, hmm, unfortunately, mm -hmm. it's something that has been pushed by the financial institutions. Hey, this is available to you. Why don't you pull some money out and pay off some debt or, you know, this or that? But it's a vehicle for them to. Well, you know, it's, a, loan for you. it's, it's uh, something um, for our conspiracy uh, podcast at some point. Uh, yeah, because when <laughs> when you look at when you look at everything that they've they've done right, and I'm not talking about just the lenders and in uh, the big corporations, but I'm talking about our, our government also, right? They have done things mm -hmm. over the years to ensure that there's no equity for you at the end, right? I mean, reverse mortgages now. You know, I mean, a, a reverse yep. mortgage, if it's really something that's absolutely needed, might be a great thing. But too often, it it appears that it's really there to just ensure that there's there's no wealth to pass on down the line. So, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, whenever whenever you mention conspiracy theories, Bob nice. Bob is the first. Thank you for waking up, Bob. Uh, <laughs> If if I could just <laughs> Bob wakes up, um, Matt. If I could just interject, just I know we're on a housing and and uh, market and mortgage topic. Um, I think um, what probably in the in the near term, probably in the next year or so, um, what happened after the financial crisis as lenders were capped on what they could do as far as pushing certain products and. And the mortgage guidelines naturally got tightened. Mm. Um, what you see right now in, and I don't know if you two have seen it, um, is the auto loan, uh, marketplace opened up where, boy, if you could just fog a mirror and show a couple pay stubs, you had a car loan waiting for you. Um, I, I happen to think in the next 12 months, that's going to be the disaster for, uh, the financial institutions is all of those people out there who, um, because of what's going on in unemployment and the current mar uh, markets due to the pandemic, you're going to see a lot of uh, um, the trucks pulling up and repoing some vehicles here pretty soon um, because there was a lot of lending that took place in that marketplace um, rather than the housing that was very loose as far as where they were lending their money I'm, to buy cars. I'm surprised that, so I'm surprised at how many $1,500 $1, cars are out there. 
Oh my God. Yeah. $1,500 a month people pay for their car payment. They, they know you that know, it depreciates, right? I mean, cars uh, don't appreciate. You know, <laughs> yeah, but people think nothing of going out and spending fifty, sixty, seventy thousand mm-hmm. dollars on a car and just financing it, right? And they go, yeah, it cost me fifteen hundred dollars a a month, but look, I've got a sixty dollar, sixty thousand dollar car, right? And next year you have a forty five thousand dollar car. <laughs> And your payment is so. So I think you're right, David. I think it's a great point to bring up. I think that coupled with, Good as point, you mentioned Bob. before, student loan debt, I, and, and and this election does matter because you're going to see um, individuals not able to pay not just their their auto loans but their student loans as well. And even though they're getting a reprieve, a pause, if you will, on some of that for the next few months, the interest in that they don't go away. So when they come back, people are going to be finding themselves not making as much money if they're making any money. And therefore, there's going to be a lot of individuals that are not going to be able to pay those loans back. And as I, I see a maybe not in the housing market, but things that can lead into the housing market and auto payment. That's a really good point you make. In fact, I just saw a couple of cars get uh, repossessed a couple of days ago. Um no, no I, I parked mine in the garage. They can't get to it. <laughs> One of them next year's, was it? <laughs> Smart strategy. I'm not, I'm not opening up that garage at all. So I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> Smart strategy. But I, I feel there, better man. now since I know my car payment is not $1,500 a month. Oh, okay. Oh, buddy. I, I had one, just anecdotally, I had one guy had a $1,230 a month car payment. Um, and oh my God, I was trying to work his loan. Uh, that, well, not thankfully, but he totaled it. Um, and ended up in a, 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 a little gap period that allowed me to do his, his loan for him. <laughs> but, but I, you know, you're right, Bob. I, I, I gasp when I see a credit report that has a $1,200, $1,400 car payment on it. That, that's yeah, just you know, ungodly to me. You know, how that's often like a mortgage do you have to payment. Tell the borrower that. We can't do it because um, your student debt is too high. You your car payment is too high, right? Your credit cards, uh, your credit card payments and balances are are too high, right? Your three car yeah. payments are are too much. That's an issue too. And then uh, to go back to the generational thing as well, um, what I see a lot of more more than I would have expected. Are debts on uh, prospective borrowers who have cosigned for their children, and I'm not talking the typical one that that you normally would see as far as student loans and those kind of things. That that's expected. I would cosign on my my child's student loan in a heartbeat, but I'm talking cars, mortgages, and you're talking about a generation that, for whatever reason, maybe though their kids do have those student loan debts and they can't meet the the lending requirements. Because all of those things are there and mom and dad from a different generation have the wherewithal to step in. Now mom and dad mm. want to refinance and all of a sudden their children's debts showing up mm-hmm. on their credit report. Yeah. I see and a lot more of that. And their kids aren't making too. the payments on the cars. And, and they're all of a sudden, 
All of a sudden, they're, they're surprised by they, they have late payments. I'm, I'm at a point where I just kids, want a right? VW bug. I don't need a radio. Yeah. I don't need an AC unit. Right. I just want a VW bug and call it good. I, I'm, I'm in the car. That's what I don't understand about cars. I'm in the car. I have no idea what it looks like on the outside when I'm driving, nor do I care. Exactly, exactly right. I don't even care if it runs that well. It doesn't matter to me. I just want a VW bug no and repo skirt around town bug, with that. Okay? So if you if you own it yourself. So uh, let me let me follow up with a, with a question: Is there is there something else that we have not touched upon on this first introductory episode in the housing market that you would want our listeners to kind of start thinking about moving forward? And maybe it's the nature of your business itself or is the housing market in totality, but something to keep in mind until we talk again. You know, I, I would encourage anybody out there, uh, you know, we, it's, it's funny because when, when we're young, we just feel like we have all the time in the world, right? And I, I think we've done a very poor job at, at educating our children. Uh, to realize that, you know, you know, one buck out of out of 10 should be saved for uh, your future, because, you know, uh, I'm in I'm in really good shape and health right now. Right. But uh, old Bob is probably going to need something. And, you know, it's we should be teaching. We should be teaching them, you know, real economics, um, the reality of of how you how you live uh, within your means and mm-hmm. still manage to save for your future, right? And, and that means that you know you don't, you know, my my rule of thumb, which has gotten tougher over the years, is that you don't make any big purchases. Unless you have uh, reserves for everything of at least one year, 12 months worth of reserves. And that doesn't include your retirement accounts, right? So if you're going to go out and finance a new car and you've got a mortgage and you've got another car you're paying on and you've got credit card debts, if you lost your job tomorrow, you should have enough money in the bank to pay that for 12, 12 months. I know that's not reality uh, today when people are working, you know, paycheck to paycheck, living paycheck to paycheck. But, you know, largely a lot of them are living paycheck to paycheck simply because they spend too much money. Right. There's a lot of people that don't make it. If I get that, yep. um, you know, that would you know going forward i would just like to see people plan uh for their success uh as opposed to just hope it happens somewhere along the line that's it that's the word have a plan have a goal um i would say have a goal I, and matt i would also say uh let's stick with the fundamentals bob, bob's right don't you know, immediate gratification is not the greatest gratification. The gratification of prior generations of putting off that satisfaction until you actually knew what you were doing, you had saved for, mm-hmm. you had planned for, um, and you had not, let's say, as a mortgage guy, mortgaged your future for. Um, 
but it's the fundamentals. It's, you know, concepts of, you know, Einstein said the most powerful force known to man is uh, compound interest. Save your money, pay yourself first, um, get that 401k in place and don't, don't take a loan against it. Buy that house. Don't borrow against the equity. Sure. Bob's right. You can refinance into a lower interest rate if the opportunity presents itself. Uh, and unless you've been undisciplined and allowed yourself to build up your credit card debt and it's crushing you, don't tap into that. That's that's your nest egg. That's your future. Um, so I, I say return to the fundamentals. Um, and unfortunately, Bob Bob said it right, but he should have stopped at we haven't educated our children. We just haven't educated them. You know, um, when, when I uh, uh, and I'm old, too, just right along with Bob. When I get out of this, that's my goal is to educate um, kids either at a high school, community college level on finance because they don't know. They don't know how to balance a checkbook. They don't know how important it is to invest in themselves and pay themselves first. But, man, I that's feel like one I, of the most I just important things to, that will lead uh, to their happiness. Nice public service um, announcement. The more deep you into know their retirement years. from Bob and David. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I don't disagree with IPA you. While I do um, neither one of you at all yeah. on the on your points there. <laughs> I, I do think there's a lack of education in in the schools. It's just how to be successful in life, and it starts with some discipline and some, you know, postponing gratification. I mean, that's that's nature of it. Now, another point that we have that we can talk about later, a different episode is. The effect of healthcare, right? The number one bankruptcy or people going to bankruptcy is healthcare expenses. And so you have to take that into consideration on healthcare costs. And that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother episode, obviously. But I want to thank you guys, both of you for spending some time here on this first introductory episode on the housing market. And I hope to do this, you know, routinely for our listeners, because I do think there's going to be more questions as the weeks go by. And I think I can't think of two other people that would want on here on a consistent basis to speak to people and to answer questions that are going to come in on this. So I'll leave you guys a couple of last words. If you guys want to say anything uh, before I close out and thank you properly at that point. Well, I was thinking as you said that um, our our next podcast should maybe be um, uh, something with a tropical theme. So you know, we could have those drinks with little umbrellas in them. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how to yeah, respond. I like to that the sound of that. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, here, here's what I would say, Matt, is that we've, we've done a nice job of a 30,000 foot view. Um, it's almost like we are, we're, we're not in a, a, a propelled uh, airplane at that 30,000 foot view at this point. We're kind of in a glider um, at this point, uh, kind of buffeted along the winds. And we're going to land wherever we land based on what the jet stream does and where those winds take us. So we're kind of floating along to look at the at, at where we end up. Maybe by the time the next podcast that we do, we'll have a little more specifics about where the market's looking, the reactions of um, the policies of government. Um, and the things that are going to get us to that landing point, maybe with a little bit more refinement. 
Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I know Bob will be able to share some, um, some more granular things about the housing market. You know, we are in Phoenix. Um, it's different, but Bob keeps an eye on, on the country as a whole. And, and I'll be able to share some things as far as, um, you know, where are the mortgage markets, the requirements and, and how the guidelines are changing. Absolutely. Giving, and, and I think, uh, um, to you, that's the, a great uh, metaphor. Unsettled, uh, uh, let's I hope that we have a smooth landing versus an abrupt crash, right? Uh, and from our glider on that. No crashes. So, um, you, you, both you guys stay on after, uh, we log off here, uh, for a chat no afterwards. After no, 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 recording. no. But for our <laughs> listeners, I want to thank you all for listening. As I said before, this is a first in a series of podcast episodes on the housing market with Bob and David, who are outstanding and very knowledgeable. And please uh, come listen to the other ones as well. I want to thank Ringer again for their uh, incredible service. As I said before, record anytime, anywhere with anybody as if you're recording in the same room. Silverman Sounds, thank you very much for their music. And so with that, I want to thank you again. You can reach out to the podcast. We have a new email is called drinkswmc2020 at gmail.com. That again is drinkswmc2020 at gmail.com. If you want to email me with a show topic, you can come on the show as well. If you want to email me regarding a question for Bob and David, you can email me with that as well. But I want to thank you. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, David. Outstanding podcast. I learned a great deal. And I think knowledge is power and knowledge gives me a little more confidence growing in an unsettled marketplace. And so I really do appreciate your comforting words moving forward. And with that, everyone have a wonderful night. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay away, and we'll talk very soon. Take care.